Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What is up, Z-Pack? It's your boy Z-Dog MD. Uh, we are doing something different today. It's inside the doctor's studio with Z-Dog MD. It's a different setup that we're using. We have an amazing guest that I'm going to talk about in a second, but a quick bit of housekeeping. This is going to be a long, in-depth conversation that you will really, really be interested in. So if you don't want to watch video and burn through your phone battery, you can get this on a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Just search Incident Report and we'll put links in. If you could do us a favor and actually review that podcast, leave a little review. It helps us bump up the charts so we can give that punk Neil deGrasse Tyson a run for his money because he's like in the top 10 and I want to be there too. The other thing that you can do to help the show is subscribe on Facebook. We have a new supporter function that we're beta testing with Facebook. It's like $4.99 a month and you get early releases, you get exclusive live conversations with me where we can talk about stuff that then will make its way to the main page. It helps us pay for all this and grow the show and give you a voice. Very, very helpful to us. The third thing I want to say is, if you've noticed my face, <laughs> I went to the dermatologist. Uh, the other day, you guys saw Dr. H.L. Greenberg, and he's like, hey, after the show, he's like, I can burn off a few other things with the, you know, the hyfricator here. And I'm like, sure, go for it, bro. Now I look like I was in a meth lab explosion, which is still an upgrade, people, for my face. So I apologize if I look a little ratty. Now I'm going to introduce someone who does not look or sound or think ratty. This is Dr. Lois mm -hmm. Raymondetta. She is professor of gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. That place is the bomb, Tom Heineber. And by the way, recently ranked number one for cancer care in the U.S. She uh, and I met at the Texas Medical Association's um, Big Shindig where I keynoted and she came up afterwards and was like, here are all the things that we have in common about how we think. And I said, you need to come on our show to talk about women's cancer issues, HPV, palliative medicine and oncology and the intersection of those things and yoga. <laughs> Who knew? Dr. Raymond Detta. Thank you for coming. Thank you for letting me be here. Man, so your flight just got in yes. and you came direct from the airport. Directly. And you look fantastic. Thank you. How why is it that I look like a meth lab explosion <laughs> survivor? I didn't go to the dermatologist <laughs> yesterday. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't been to the dermatologist all my life. Mm -hmm. And I go and I'm like, wow. And he's like, well, you have this and you have this and you have this. And you've made a few trips around the sun. And I'm like, are you calling me old? Yeah, you, you are in Las Vegas. That's true. The yeah. sun, I've been here for six years yeah. and it's really. Yeah. Houston is no walk no. in the park. No, either. it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you wear we your sunscreen. We humidity, though. That's yeah. true. I find it protective, actually. It, yes, exactly. <laughs> so you are passionate about women's health, mm -hmm. about palliative medicine, about obviously cancer. Yeah. As a gynecologic oncologist, yeah. you're a surgeon, mm -hmm. so you treat these cancers, mm -hmm. but you also treat, obviously, the woman who's suffering from this. Right. And what I found so fascinating about you is that you're one of those rare oncologists who also does end of life yeah. really well. I want to get into that a little later because I want to start by talking about HPV, which is a passion of yours, the human yes, papillomavirus. Big passion. 
we talked about it with Patrick Ha, mm -hmm. uh, ENT. That's a head, great interview. And, and we we're mostly talking about head and neck right. stuff. We avoided the lady parts, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Quite frankly, they frightened me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the chance to have a world expert really. It's great to ask questions. Yeah, and I have many questions. Okay. I have many, many questions. Mm. And number one is, Every, you know, lots of women since they're young have heard about, I should go get my annual physical mm -hmm. and my pap and get screened for cervical cancer. Right. But the, the, the way that we do that and the guidelines for doing that have changed. Yeah. Can we start Just talking? Just the other day. Yeah, tell me about this. Well, so they changed a couple years ago and everybody was on the same page. And we're still kind of on the same page, but we don't need to do any screening before you turn 21. So was that different before? It used to be 18. 18, yeah. yeah. So now it's 21. Yeah. Uh, and at 21, you can start getting screened every three years. So it's not every, it's not the annual. No more annuals. And there are quite a few people who are still doing annuals. Right. And the risk of that is that you overtreat. So tell me about that because I've done shows about uh, the annual physical mm -hmm. exam and overtreatment resulting from that. What can happen to women who get an annual pelvic every year? Uh, first of all, a pelvic is not a little thing. Um, it is an invasive exam. Um, and it's not something that people look forward to on a regular basis. What? I was yeah. convinced like... No. Mm. No, they, they don't like that. Um, and so spacing out your pelvic exam to every three years is a nice thing. Mm. This doesn't mean that you see the doctor every three years. You should still see the doctor. Um, it's just that your pelvic exam and your pap smear doesn't need to be any more often than every three years. And a pap smear is just that little brush that they put on top of the cervix and then put it either on a slide or in a container of fluid and then the pathologist looks at it for abnormal looking cells. The problem is is that um, the most likely time to be exposed to HPV is during those early years. Mm. One third to one, one quarter to one third of women and men in that age group have been exposed and have HPV. And so if you find it, you're going to want to do something about it. But the good news is most of the time it goes away on its own. So, Especially during those years. So even early on, it can spontaneously regress. Exactly. Most Here, of the time, it does. Oh, here's a question. So how are you catching this? Do you have to get to first base, second base, third uh, base? What base? Just about any base. Any base? Any base. Can you be in the stands watching the game with popcorn? I have to think about that. Yeah. Um, it <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about that. It might involve kissing during okay. the popcorn. So actual contact. Actually, con yeah, intimate contact. contact. And that can be described in a lot of different ways. Mm. Um, touching. Mm touching hands to in, uh, intimate areas, bringing it to your mouth, mm. putting it back down, all sorts of ways that you can experiment when you're young and be exposed. And there's multiple strains. So intercourse is not required. So you don't need to get to third, is third base intercourse? <sighs> Tom Heinenberg, is third base intercourse? Hell <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> We yeah, have an no, affirmative no, on that. Yeah, definitely yeah, I don't not. know. First I, base. Yeah, I, was a, I, I studied to get into medical school, therefore there was no base at all. Um, <laughs> I think I may still be HPV free, just naturally. Uh, uh, my well, actually, probably not. That's the true. odds are not in your favor for that. What is the overall incidence then? 80 to 90% of us are going to have HPV at some point in our life. So people who are like, well, my kid's not going to have sex, uh, they're not going to get HPV, so therefore they're not going to get vaccinated. It's so kind of a strange wish for your kid. I mean, you'd kind of hope at some point that your kid would have an intimate relationship with somebody. That's kind of true. Yeah. That's kind of true. I'm, I, you know, yeah, it's still tough for me to wrap my head around with two Someday. teenage girls coming up uh, in the world, but uh, yeah. yes, absolutely. So the question then is if everyone's gonna, you know, there's certain strains of HPV that'll be, yeah. that will tend to cause cancer. Yeah. Uh, we vaccinate against some of those strains. Nine of them. Nine of them. Mm -hmm. 
but yet we are chronically under-vaccinated in this country. Yeah, we did just get those numbers too, and we are making progress. Uh, last year, 60% of adolescents had gotten their first dose, and this year it's 65%. That's great. So it's approaching that 80-ish percent that we really need to get herd immunity from. And herd immunity is when enough people are uh, vaccinated, the virus just doesn't have a place to hide anymore. Exactly. It used it's, to be cough-cough herd immunity. This is a little bit more intimate herd immunity. But it, yeah. Hmm. We've got to think of a good, <laughs> sexy name right. for for intimate herd immunity. Right. Yeah. Let me, I'm going to cogitate on that. Let yes, I'll work on that. I'll let you, I'll <laughs> okay. send you a message. So th this idea that then um, vaccinating can lower the incidence of those precancerous and cancerous lesions of the cervix. We've mm -hmm. talked about head and neck yeah. anal, and other things that it yeah. can cause, but you're really uh, specialized in the women parts, right. and in particular the cervix. Are there other types of cervical cancer that can happen that are not HPV related? Not so much. I mean, you can have metastatic disease to the cervix. There are some very high risk type like neuroendocrine carcinoma of the cervix, um, which is not HPV related, but almost every other type is HPV related. Got it, got it. So really by by immunizing, you're lowering the risk. Absolutely. Do, do, do you ever see a, a, an opportunity that we could immunize everybody such that we wouldn't have to do screening anymore? Or do you think that we're always gonna have to do screening? So right now we're vaccinating, uh, we are vaccinating with the HPV-9, but years ago we were doing only the HPV-4 and then there was a two, I don't know if you remember those, yeah. but HPV-16 and 18 has been protected against through all three of those vaccines. Um, and those are the ones that you and Dr. Ha talked about most likely to cause oral pharyngeal cancer as well as cervix cancer. But then there's a bunch of other types that can cause cancer. Now we're protecting against those. So we've moved the protection rate for cervix cancer from about 70% with those early vaccines to about 85% with the newer vaccine. But that still, still leaves. Not perfect, yeah. Still not perfect. Still not perfect. So do not be a falsely lulled into thinking I don't need to get that. Absolutely, you still need to get screened. So now let's go back to the screening. Every three years starting at age 21. Mm -hmm. Just the pap. Just the pap. We don't test for HPV. We just assume they all have it. Got it. And they're gonna get rid of it in most cases. It's the persistent HPV infection that's the problem. So when we turn 30, we start looking for that HPV infection. Now, if you have an abnormal path during those first few years, you will get tested. Got, okay, okay, okay. Let me rewind that, because this is, I'm, I'm learning something here. So the reason we don't do HPV testing in the 20s, mm -hmm. from 21 to 29, uh -huh. is because we just assume they have it. Yeah. Even if they were vaccinated uh, with the earlier vaccine. Right. Right, so we just assume they have it, so we go ahead and do the pap, looking for abnormal cells and right. precancerous lesions. If they have the precancerous lesions, right. then we would consider doing right. the HPV. And remember that we're only at 65% for that first dose this year. We were 60% last year, and the year before that we were in the 50s. And for the, for the percentage that finished the, the uh, vaccine series and are completely protected, we're still only at 48%. Yeah, and that's and boys are actually doing a little bit, starting to do a little bit better. Nobody seems to be worried about vaccinating the boys as much as they seem to be worried about vaccinating girls. And I want to come back to that because yeah. the the vaccine reluctance with HPV vaccine yeah. is obscene. It is really strange. It's based on insanity, mm -hmm. uh, bad PR, mm -hmm. uh, and, yeah. and just fear, and confusion, 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 yeah. and lack of knowledge. Because it, again, you guys probably talked about this in your interview, but we really didn't even understand the oral pharyngeal connection until recently. So the original marketing was to girls mm -hmm. and to OB-GYNs who were vaccinating too late anyway. The kids were already exposed. Yeah. Uh, then it was to pediatricians. Then it was, oh yeah, let's vaccinate the boys so they can protect the girls. And then we're like, oh, wait a minute. The fastest growing cancer is oral pharyngeal cancer, the tonsil in the back of the tongue. Yeah. Um, so we need to vaccinate the boys to protect themselves because they're the ones that are getting it. 
Yeah, you know, and actually, Great Britain actually recently, their NHS actually mm -hmm. approved vaccination for boys and girls, I yeah. think, and covered it, which is a big deal because as a socialized medical system, yeah. they are very interested in cost effectiveness. cost effectiveness. They found it to be cost effective yeah. to create the herd immunity. Yeah. And and so... Well, the treatment is unbelievable that people have to go through for both of those cancers, the things that they, they're on the opposite sides of the body, the oral pharynx and the cervix, but the treatment involves weeks of radiation, horrible effects to quality of life, um, definitely change for your, your, you think intimacy will be affected, then it will absolutely be affected after chemo and radiation or a radical hysterectomy. And so uh, protecting or preventing these kind of cancers is, um, is the most important thing. And, and I see all sorts of cancers, but this one we actually know what caused it and we know how to prevent it, we know how to screen for it. So when I see someone dying from this, it's, uh, it's just a tragedy in, in multitudes. Can I get angry for a second? Yeah, So I'm angry. Yeah. <laughs> There are nurses, mm, nurses, that this morning. there are nurses in my own tribe who say, I'm with you on vaccination, Z-Dog. I'm with you on measles, mumps, and all that, but I just don't feel good about the HPV vaccine. I think we need more years of data, and I've seen lots of bad, terrible side effects and young girls being paralyzed yeah. and this and that. And they don't look at the data, primary data. Yeah. They don't look at the meta-analyses that looked at the efficacy right. and the safety of this, which yeah. is unparalleled, Endless. unparalleled yes. vaccine. over a decade of mm -hmm. experience with this. Mm -hmm. And they have the nerve to tell patients this. And I'll tell you why this makes me angry, because like you said, we have seen women die right. Right. of these preventable cancers. Right. It's not uncommon. It's not uncommon, and here's the thing, you're a surgeon. Mm -hmm. you, part of your, your livelihood is treating these cancers. Right. You want to oh, see them Oh, I don't ever want to gone. see them again, yeah. So, so, so there's, a, there's a real hope that we could eliminate HPV-related cancer starting with cervix if we get the vaccination rates up and we continue to screen. Let's talk more about screening because otherwise I'll just get so angry about the prevention. By the way, by the way, here's a th funny thing. So mm -hmm. my daughter's 10, mm -hmm. my oldest daughter. Mm -hmm. She came to me the other day because she watches all my videos. Right. She saw more than warts the video. Right. She was in it. That, you know, that's one of the main reasons I'm here because I have been a fan since that video. So we did that yes. version with me and Devin. Mm -hmm. Then I did a new version live with me and my daughter. Oh. And she saw it and she's like, what is this HPV thing? And I go, well, it can cause cancer of your lady parts mm -hmm. uh, if you don't get the vaccine and you're not careful this and that. And she said, okay, so when can I get the vaccine? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, you're 10 typically 11. You we, could give it to her now. We could do it now. Mm -hmm. She is game to do it now. I even told her it's a yeah. series of three. Two. It's two? Yes, because if you do it on time, it's only two. So, Six months apart. I'll tell you what, as soon as I go home, I'm gonna schedule with her pediatrician and we'll do it. Well, the nice thing about doing it now is that when she turns 11 and she needs to get the Tdap and the meningococcal vaccine. Do it all. She's got all three and then she's done. Yep. Rather I, than I, getting all three and knowing she has to come back for another, this way you kind of so, so yeah. you know, that's the thing, multiple, do it all at once. Yeah. And you know, we use something called Buzzy, which is, uh, it's another doctor, Amy Baxter, developed mm -hmm. this device. It's a cold vibration device. It's a neuromodulator. Oh. So it goes oh. right above where you give the injection. My daughter would have loved Oh, we have, we have live video that we posted on Facebook of both my daughters getting flu vax with Buzzy and they didn't feel a thing. Mm -hmm. In fact, they laughed. I wouldn't, I'm sad to show you a picture of my daughter getting oh, her HPV vaccine. I told her to smile and look proud so I could show the picture and it's, it's not showable. You know what though? Yeah. And the thing <laughs> is there's so much fear. You know what I think? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people's unconscious, we're conditioned, we have fear of needles, we have fear mm -hmm. of this thing. And that 
really when we're looking for confirmation bias yeah. to feed our, our unconscious sort of fear of this, we go, well, see, here was a lady in Japan who was paralyzed. Here was a woman, a video. And, and of course, those images have nothing to do with the vaccine. Right. They're just correlated. And so th th this idea that then you can generate all this fear and people right. then grasp onto it and go, I'm not going to get this life-saving, life-changing vaccine. I think the other thing that's concerning is the, the kind of lack of confidence in our own system to find uh, harm and that to not recognize that we don't want there to be harm mm. to people. And so I usually use that example of the oral rotavirus from yeah. years ago and how when that came out, although there, there uh, was no specific concern related to intussusception, it is out about eight or nine months and intussusception or when the bowels collapse on each other in the infants occurred, it was pulled from the market immediately within within six to eight months, I yeah. believe it was. Mm -hmm. And so the HPV vaccine's now been out 12 years. Uh, we have millions of, of evidence, pieces of, of data related to this and no definite correlation with anything other than that it hurts a little bit. Um, that any adolescent who gets a vaccine has been all hyped up about it might faint. Mm -hmm. If they hit their head, that might get reported as a complication. Syncopal event right. with head trauma. Uh -huh. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So make sure they don't fall. Right. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a little fever, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Sometimes. Minimal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So really, not much. Yeah. And yet, potentially life-saving. Now, yeah. going back to the screening, so at age from 30 mm -hmm. to, to 65, 65 mm -hmm. what are we doing? So you have a couple of options, and that's where we—it's like Starbucks. You shouldn't have too many options. You should just have a couple. We'll get things better. I, I like a venti latte HPV with a side of pap. I said soy pap, please. Yeah. Yeah. Soy pap is gross, by the way. You don't want that. Just go full fat pap. Uh, <laughs> okay. So there's a so up until recently, you could do HPV co-testing with a pap and HPV DNA testing. Mm every five years. So the HPV DNA test on the cells from the pap, mm -hmm. got it. Or the continue the every three year pap smear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now you can do just HPV testing every five years. And what are you testing with HPV? Uh, it's, it's the high risk HPV strains. Yes. But are you testing cells? Or what are you testing? Uh, you're testing for the DNA. You're okay. also, yeah, you're testing for the no, DNA. Sorry, sorry. You're testing for the DNA, but are, what's your uh, tissue sample? You're still doing it. It's the same thing. Still doing the pelvic. Oh, yeah, you, yeah. Normally when you do the co-test, it's a little swab, and you, it's not a separate biopsy or anything like that. It's just a swab on the cervix. Got it. Put it into the solution. Got send it. it off to the lab. Got they it. can look at both the cells and the HPV uh, by doing that. Now we're just not collecting the cell information. Unless, of course, the HPV comes back high risk. Got it. In which case, you then need to move on to your next step. Got it. And what? And that next step is actually colposcopy. Colposcopy. Describe colposcopy yeah. for people like Tom and Logan who will faint when they hear about this. Yeah. So, um, so in addition to the speculum, um, which is a lovely device placed into the vagina to look at the cervix, you then have a microscope that you move in close to mm. the speculum and you look at the cervix. Now, the way that we're able to really detect abnormal looking cells is by using essentially vinegar. It's a dilute acetic acid solution. And you put it on the cervix and then- And it doesn't hurt or anything. Well, um, it, it doesn't, but if you have any excoriation, itching, anything like that, it does burn. I mean, okay, if you put yeah. vinegar, vinegar on, on anything, yeah. on anything, it'll hurt. It's like a lemon, you know, right? It's, it hurts. So, so yes, it can burn a little bit. Mm. Um, and then you put it on the cervix, and it makes the abnormal cells look more white. There's also other things that you look for. There's a whole vocabulary that we look for. I'm sure you remember white. this. Yeah, yes. I remember this. Yeah. white is yep. a acetic acid that turns it white. We also use words like mosaicism, mm -hmm. where we talk about the little cells look like cobblestoning, and that's really from new blood vessel growth, from neoplasia, 
and so it looks a little bit unusual. And then sometimes you see new blood vessels on it, and we call that punctation. Got it. And so and those I, are signs of of precancer. Got it. So over so once you've been exposed to HPV, most people it goes away. In about three to five years, in a small portion of people, you develop precancers. Mm -hmm. That's where you get these overgrowth of these abnormal cells. And as long as it doesn't go through the basement membrane of the epithelium, then it stays in as a precancer. Got it. And you can resect it with, uh, we use something called LEAP. Yep. We use something called uh, cones. And you take out a portion of the cervix. And that's where overtreatment becomes an issue. Because mm. if you do that a couple of times, you can really shorten the cervix. Uh, not to mention it's a procedure that you can bleed from. It's unlikely, but it can happen. But you can shorten the cervix and potentially increase preterm birth. Interesting. So, so there's, it's not totally a harmless screening thing. Well, like any screening. Well, definitely. Yeah. Uh, I would say a derm screen is a lot less invasive. Well, not always. Look at my I'm, face. <laughs> Look. I'm saying it's this is invasive. <laughs> it's not as invasive as a pelvic exam. Gotcha. And then biopsies hurt. Yeah. So when you look at the cervix before you move on to the cone biopsy, you've usually done some biopsies to prove that it's a precancer, and yeah. then you do the resection. So, so, so you don't want to do that if you don't have to do that. And, and, and you, you touched on over-treatment, over-screening. This is why maybe every year is not a great idea. Right. This is why maybe after 65, right. what are they saying? So if you've had normal PAPs and no new risk factors, like let's say you were recently divorced and you're out on the dating scene again, um, then you, and you've had three normals, mm -hmm. and no long history of any precancers, then you can stop screening. Got it. Uh, that's a decision you should have with your primary doctor. Got it, got it. Because um, everybody's situation is a little different. It's interesting because, you know, a lot, there's been a lot of talk of, uh, as the boomers are retiring, mm -hmm. they're getting jiggy with it in the nursing homes. And uh, meaning, um, yeah, I'm not sure I know what that means. I'm not sure I know what that means, <laughs> Dr. Raymond Detta. No, yeah, they, they're being sexually active with, oh, okay. yeah, with yes, strangers. Yes, I heard about that in mm. the nursing home. Which, yes. first of all, sign me up for that nursing home. Sec <laughs> I think sexually transmitted diseases are on the rise in that, nursing homes. That's right. So they're getting syphilis, gonorrhea, yes. herpes. The question is: Is HPV different strains of HPV? Are they because these are unvaccinated yeah, uh, adults? If, if you know, is that going to change our thinking of screening in, a, say, a nursing home population? Kind so of that's like that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so number one, I think I, I mentioned that we believe that it takes at least three to five years mm. to develop a precancer, and then another probably about ten years. In fact, some of the early studies looking at HPV DNA said that if you're HPV DNA positive, the chance of you getting a cancer within the next ten years is incredibly low. That's mm. why it's five years. Mm. I mean, we're actually being even conservative. Um, so if you're HPV negative, you're not going to develop an HPV cancer within the next five years. Got it, got it. And with the, so if, you're, if your uterus has been removed, you've had a hysterectomy and the cervix has been taken and it's, it wasn't for cervical cancer. Correct, or there, dysplasia. Or dysplasia. There's no reason to continue to No, screen. that's yeah. correct. Right, because, yes. yeah. Um, that would be like one of those unindicated tests that bite you later. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you don't know what to do with that. We don't know what to do with an abnormal uh, what do we do with HPV in the vagina? We actually have no idea what that means. Right, right, right. It so. might mean increased risk. It's like what you and Dr. Ha were talking about. You can swab the mouth for HPV, but we don't know what that means. 
I'm glad you actually watched my interview. I did watch your whole I'm, interview. It was great. I'm very moved. Yeah. Well, you know, what's great is now to talk about it from the female uh, care perspective is so important because that's the vast majority mm -hmm. of the effect that we can have with HPV, although boys should be vaccinated as well, which we talked about. Absolutely. But I think um, this idea then that so you get the screening right, the new guidelines, are they based on what, U.S. Preventative Task Force? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Are, is there disagreement between the different entities? Not as many people have uh, jumped on with the primary HPV testing yet, although the, it is an acceptable option. Got it. It's not, you know, most ACOG still recommends co-testing. Right. Um, and in fact, what I, I recommend co-testing. Many patients are still getting every three-year cytology screens only after age 30. Mm -hmm. And I'm not exactly sure why their doctors haven't converted over to the co-test. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that is, that's the gold standard right now. And yes, HPV, uh, testing on its own would also be good. Got it. How long have you been treating cancer in women? Uh, I finished my training in 2000. Uh, yeah, so started my training in 1997, finished it in 2000. Uh, and yeah, since then. So since then? Uh, I've been working at MD Anderson ever since, but I have had a job working at the county hospital for 17 of those years. Which which hospital is that? LBJ. LBJ. Lyndon Baines Johnson. Wow, so you're mm -hmm. taking care of obviously a different Uninsured socioeconomic. or low insured patients um, who, you know, that's, that's one of the really fascinating things about the HPV disease. Uh, the, the makeup of the men who are getting oral pharynx cancer are usually white, um, heterosexual, upper middle class men, where cervix cancer has always been a disease of the underinsured mm. because it's all related to screening. Uh. So the le if you get screened, you might still have it, but you can get it removed before it becomes a cancer. Right. Whereas I was seeing patients presenting Pat, they're not even eligible for surgery. They're only eligible for radiation, which can take about eight weeks to finish. Um, so it, it was really upsetting, and it was a regular thing. In fact, the numbers for us are about 4,000 women die yearly in the U.S. from cervix cancer. God, I felt like they were all there. Um, and I think, honestly, a lot of that is because many of these patients are um, visiting the U.S., Mm. Um, definitely in the Texas area. Mm. And so they may not actually be even recorded in the end. Oh, wow. So um, do, you, do you think there's a component of, you know, we talk a lot about discrepancies in gender in terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, doctors don't take women's pain seriously. Mm -hmm. They maybe aren't taking different complaints, heart attack, those mm -hmm. kind of things. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think there's a, a gender discrepancy here in terms of screening, or do you think it's more a socioeconomic issue? Um, well, are you talking about screening for oral pharynx versus... Yeah, let's just compare... We just don't say, know the epidemiology of the oral pharynx. The, well, yeah, yeah, it's tough because you're comparing apples and oranges mm -hmm. because men don't have a cervix, right? Right. But y I assume anyways, although <laughs> I sometimes wonder with Logan because he's, he's complicated. But the, the, he must be special. He's very special, yeah. The, the, uh, the, the, the idea that, you know, especially since in the older days, it was obstetrics, gynecology was mm -hmm. a male-dominated... Right. profession. Right. But now we're starting to see it change. Do you mm. think that's actually going to lead to better care for women or do you think it's not going to have a big mm. effect? You know, I I think it's about the person. Mm. I think that uh, it, the gender of the physician, um, I think that you, you can have a great physician that's a female or a male. It's really about how they want to listen to the person. It doesn't matter what gender you are necessarily. Um, I suppose a, per, a first-hand experience of some things may be helpful, but man, I've met some wonderfully compassionate male gynecologic oncologists, so I don't know that I would. And we, you know, we at the, were. At the screening is really about the socioeconomic status. It's the fact that it, it goes so far back. I mean, to me, it goes to elementary school, really understanding how to take care of yourself. 
Uh. You know, like we don't really teach people how to take care of themselves, um, how to be their own self-advocate, how to know that I'm going to have to do cancer screenings and then repeat it like from an elementary school education to a middle, middle school education to a college education on this is self-care. This is what you need to do for self-care. And so you get out there and you don't even know how to navigate a system, much less that you even needed to go to the system. Lots of women that I've seen with cervix cancer in the, in the um, lower socioeconomic status didn't know that they needed pap smears um, after they had a baby. Like they, Their first pap smear was when they were 40 because they had bleeding and it's a cervix cancer and they hadn't had babies. And uh, I mean, it hadn't been since they had a baby. And, um, and it blows my mind and I'm not sure at what point, it's always so hard to decide whether it's the patient who didn't take the opportunity or society who didn't help the patient out. You know, it's, it's just such a complicated thing. And this is across the board with mm -hmm. all disease management now. Mm -hmm. You know, AA, yeah. there's so this. Where's the responsibility lie? There's social determinants, there's government, there's personal responsibility, and where they all intersect. Those crummy school lunches, they never learned how to eat healthy. Tell me about <laughs> it. And then you have TV, which mm -hmm. is really good at teaching us to get a big gulp right. and to really want that newest Barbie doll thing. Right. Have or, you seen some of the hamburgers on there? Do There's they like, look delicious? Uh, well, I don't eat meat, so. Oh, are you a vegetarian or a vegan? Uh, I eat fish. Okay, so you're a pescatarian. Yes. See, I know my terminology. All right, good. <laughs> uh, well, so the, this idea then that we're hyper-educating people on how to behave badly, mm -hmm. but not really doing a great job with, like you said, self-care. Right. Now, here's a question. So in you, so many ways. In so many, in every mm -hmm. way. Yes. You, you, you're at MD Anderson, which mm -hmm. is an amazing institution for taking care of tertiary care stuff. Yeah. So that means you see a lot of referrals. I do. Walk me through what that's like. What's your, I mean, what are these referrals like? Because these are people who have, obviously, cancer uh, yeah. of, 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 of the nature that you're gonna take care of, so women's uh, cancers, yeah. and they're coming to you. Just walk me through some of that, because I think a lot of our audience, even though they're in medicine, yeah. if they got cancer, they wouldn't know what to do. Right. When do you get a second opinion? When do you get a third right. opinion? What does it mean to go right. to a top cancer yeah. center? And what are you often telling people? Right. So I'm so glad you asked that, because medicine's changing so fast right now. Um, so when I first started working at MD Anderson, most people came from local surrounding areas. And over the last few years, they definitely have become more of a referral center. Mm. Um, we still see local patients, but we also see a lot of people come in for second opinions. And it's really changed things. I am somebody who really has always wanted to cover Edmonton's symptom assessment scale when the patient comes in, or to really get to know the patient and to kind of walk that journey with them. And now um, my clinics are very often uh, filled with patients who have flown in, maybe even arrived that day, and know they're gonna spend a few days at MD Anderson to get a second opinion. They have cancer care ongoing in other hospitals, and they are looking for potential clinical trials or just maybe to check that they're getting the right treatment. What's really crazy is that I still have the same amount of time to see this person, uh. and, um, and I want to be able to get to know them, but I may never meet them again. Um, and I was trying to really find that time in those visits, but there's so much material to get through, their prior tumor histories, their prior cancer histories, what kind of uh, side effects did they have from their treatment. Then, now, the whole new part is the genomic testing and what genetic abnormalities does their tumor have or do they have that might make them eligible for certain kind of trials. Or even if they were eligible, my other role 
is to talk to them about if that's the way they want to spend the rest of their life. Mm. Do they want to uproot their family and move here from another state for a period of time to be on a clinical trial? Is it worth their time? What kind of side effects could they expect? Um, and they'll have only a few days to make, to really to get all that done. They'll come to see me maybe on a Wednesday. They'll have their CAT scan on Thursday. They will maybe see another referral person on Friday. I'd love to squeeze in an integrative medicine visit if they have time. Mm. And then they usually fly home and I'll call them when I get their genomic results three weeks later. Mm. So it's, um, it's, it's really strange. And that some of the patients are in great health. Um, and they really are there to be aggressive. They are willing to move. They may have a lot of time left. They may want to be able to come and try something that might really have an amazing response. There are other patients who maybe just needed to feel that peace of mind that they've tried everything um, and that they didn't give up before they've tried everything. So they got their second opinion. And maybe my discussion is more like, um, you know, you have a lot of symptoms. I really think that our primary effort right now should be to eliminate or at least reduce your symptoms to give you the best quality of life with your family and to make sure that you've, you have an informed decision about where you're going to spend uh, the rest of your time. Mm. And almost every time I need to ask, um, do you have a medical power of attorney? Uh, and, and then that's usually a leading question to, have you ever talked about a living will? And that can be a really hard conversation with someone who just flew in to meet you for their second opinion. Uh, uh, okay, so just several things. Um, I'm talking to an oncologist, a gynecologic oncologist. Mm -hmm. I never hear a lot of oncologists talk about these things. They are the hammer and the patient is the nail. And the joke is, mm -hmm. why do they put nails in coffins to keep the oncologist out? Oh. So they, I know. I've never heard that. So, and, and the thing is, in towns like this, mm -hmm. where it's a community oncology, there mm -hmm. isn't a big academic presence, mm -hmm. it is, it's treat, 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 yeah. treat. Not have the tough discussions. You're having the tough discussions in a way where it's very, it's very difficult because they're flying in and they're yeah. flying out. You don't have a long-term relationship, but yeah. you're still doing it. Yeah. To me, that's the essential heart of what the oncologist is, is being able to treat, but yeah. also... Well, most of us who went into gin oncology, and I'm not saying we're that different, but we are one of the few oncology fields that does both surgery and chemotherapy. And most of us went to this field through OB-GYN because we wanted to be involved in the care of the whole patient. And we want to walk that journey from diagnosis to whatever that leads to. Um, I think, at least in my area, most of us have these conversations. It is becoming more difficult because the, the number of new opportunities to treat patients is growing so fast with immunotherapy, um, checkpoint inhibitors, uh, anti-angiogenesis drugs. It's almost like you could give drugs until there's nothing else to give. Mm. Um, forgetting uh, what gives meaning to your life or at least having the patient think about those things, um, I think could potentially lead to burnout for the physician as well as lost time for the patient. I, I, I mean, I consider it a kind of moral injury. We've talked about this mm -hmm. on the show, that burnout is a moral injury. It's mm -hmm. when we feel yeah. that we're not doing for someone else yeah. 
what we're supposed to be right. because we're torn in different directions. And I think I think in oncology it must be so acute because there is there's the family pushing to make yeah. sure you don't give up. You're right. fighting. And we're going to go to MD Anderson and we're going to make sure. Which it that that to me is beautiful that people could come there and get also a sense of if it is in that position mm -hmm. a sense of closure. Yeah. I talked to this wonderful doctor who looked me in the eye, who held my hand and said. Yeah. You, you've done everything you can do, now let's really focus on your symptoms. Yeah. And just hearing that can release the burden of I have to fight this using this and this and this, instead of I have to fight these symptoms and be comfortable and be with my family. Well, I'd, like to, I'd like to give you a, a very generic example. I'll change some things about it, but um, one of those visits uh, was with a person who overall her performance status looked okay to me. Uh, but we went ahead and ordered the things that we wanted to order, including a CAT scan, which was done the next day. And the day after, I saw the results of it, and it was overwhelming amount of cancer. Mm. And um, I called the family because she was supposed to have an appointment with the targeted therapy department later that day. And I said, I don't normally do this, but I, I really don't think that it's worth her time to go to that appointment. Um, and I, I really think that from what you said and the, what she's been feeling, and I ended up talking to a family member, that she should go home. Um, and I, I think she was relieved to hear that. And um, the week after, I got uh, an email from that person who thanked me because they went home and she died two days later. Oh, wow. um, and she said, you know what, had we not gone home on that day, we might not have made it. She had two days of saying goodbye to people. And it was just the most beautiful thing. And she sent me a picture and it was just, it made my day. What a gift. Yeah. What it's a, a gift. gift. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I, you know, and it's interesting, uh, Lois, because we met after the mm -hmm. gig that I did, and mm -hmm. there was something about you because you talked about palliative care. Mm -hmm. You talk about just in this, you know, mm -hmm. you get mobbed after those things. And the brief interaction we had, I was like, this person is special because I think there's something about that manner of being with people, being able to listen, being able to say, this is not about me, this is not about medicine, mm -hmm. this is about you. Life. It's about life. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, a related thought to that is the men, the husbands or the female yeah. partners mm -hmm. of your patients. Mm -hmm. How do you work with them or what's your experience with that side of things? That's interesting. Um, like I try to make sure I've, I've I'm, the patient's my primary responsibility, but it is definitely important for um, the patient's support system to be involved. And in fact, not just from a physical sense, but also for their well-being. Mm. Um, and there's actually our, our integrative medicine person, Lorenzo Cohen, just wrote a book with his wife. And that is the primary aspect of anti-cancer care that they talk about is your social well-being mm. and the people around you to support you. Where it comes into play in the clinic is, uh, it's not unusual to have a, a family member look at me and say, so what's her prognosis? And I'll look at the patient and say, is this something that you wanna know? Mm -hmm. And most often they'll say, so, well, sometimes they say yes, but many times they're like, no, you can talk to them about that afterwards. I don't want to know exactly how much time I have. You can give me an estimate, but, and we're not great at that anyway, as right, you know, where right. we get it wrong a Terrible. lot of the time. Yeah. That said, it's nice to know that you have an incurable cancer. And there's been multiple studies that have shown that patients who are getting palliative chemo don't actually know that they're getting palliative chemo. Yeah. And on a note that reminds me of your TMA lecture, where you talk about doctor and patient satisfaction. There was a great study a few years ago that looked at lung and colon cancer patients. 
that were getting palliative chemo, and they asked them if they knew they were getting it, and the majority of them didn't know. What was interesting about it is those patients who didn't know had better satisfaction with their physicians than those who did, which adds into this whole ethical concept yeah. of, you know, it's like telling a patient that they're overweight. Yeah. Um, telling a patient that they die doesn't always, that they're gonna die is not um, necessarily a satisfaction winner. And so how do you talk to the patient and their family in a way that maintains hope for whatever meaning that they're going to have in their, that they could have in their life and that they can still do uh, and not, um, Make it be a downer. You know, and to me, this is this, one of the central premises of oncology and, and any, any, any mm -hmm. care. Because, you know, I give terminal diagnoses, yeah. you know, and it may not be cancer. Mm -hmm. It may be that you heart have terminal con mm -hmm. congestive heart failure and that all the data says you're going to die in the next four to six months. Yeah. And you're right. You tell people in a is the best way you can, but your Prescani score becomes negative, right? Because that is hitting up against a wall of denial that's so powerful, and that wall may be all that's holding them together yeah. at that point. And it may certainly be a wall that they've built because they feel their family would fall apart. Mm -hmm. And it gets so complicated. It's so unique, especially when you don't have a lot of time. When you don't have time, because then you're like, well, what do I do with or this? a relationship? Because this is not necessarily a one-time conversation. It, 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 how can it be? Mm -hmm. How can it be? So you, they're flying in and flying out, mm -hmm. but you, what they really need is that. So my whole advocacy piece has been the primary care doc should help to be the glue, mm -hmm. but you know, obviously a lot of times you'll hand off to an oncologist, but you need at least one person who's there tying the pieces and who's there for you who's saying, this is, I'm gonna speak truth to you. Yeah. And this is what it is. And maybe there's, you know, a, a nephrologist here who wants to dialyze you and a pulmonologist yeah. who wants to drain that effusion. Right. But I'm telling you this is the big picture. Right. And if you're planning for your daughter and you're planning for this, this is how you should think about it right. maybe. Or let's talk right. about it. That. And that's true for oncologists too because we have such great palliative care services that sometimes oncologists, as you said, in fact, that's why I got interested in this. When I did my fellowship, there were many different and through my life, I've met many different gen oncologists who approach death differently. Mm. And that's a whole fascinating discussion because really, to me, it's always been about how comfortable you are with your own death. Right. Um, and, and whether or not you feel comfortable having these kind of, and also your communication skills. Right. Do you know the spikes protocol or do you know things like that? Um, but I was so fascinated by the way some people would continue chemotherapy longer periods of time versus some who are just great at having that conversation early on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, sent, I did a survey early on and asked people about that. And, it, and what was really cool was before computers, mm -hmm. and I still have all these papers, it was a written um, survey. People turned it over and wrote on the back. Oh, and just wow. were interested in, gen oncologists, interested in talking about how you come up with these. And there's a whole theory about this called, you may know about it, uh, terror management theory. I don't know this. Or death anxiety. Teach where, me about this. Well, I, I think the it goes from a prior philosopher whose name is eluding uh, me right now, but Sheldon Solomon is one of the ones who's written a lot about it. And it's just essentially that how connected you are with your own death or how even being told about a death situation um, like now would affect a, maybe even a care decision that I make for a patient later or a policeman might make in a judgment for someone else. So it'd be interesting to... 
to look at those things. I have no doubt this is the case. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I recently um, listened to Michael Pollan's audiobook, How to Change Your Mind. I'm, re I'm listening to that on audiobook right now. That is fascinating. It is fascinating. For people who don't know, this book is about uh, Michael Pollan, who had never really done psychedelics properly. Mm -hmm. uh, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, these mm -hmm. drugs, mm -hmm. MDMA, uh, different, slightly different class. He explored, went on this really yeah. travelogue of exploring the new research on how those drugs, through inhibiting our sort of default mode network and all the inhibitory neurons that cause us to shut things down, mm -hmm. opens us up to the experience of losing the self and the ego mm -hmm. and effectively dying. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a death mm -hmm. and experiencing what exists beyond that mm -hmm. and coming back and going, that's okay. Or potentially seeing things in a whole new way, um, I guess, with awe. With awe as Or potential terror. Or terror. <laughs> yeah. So, so and, and again, set and setting and how, how you need a guide yeah, and you need... Fascinating it's fascinating book. fascinating because yeah. in the 60s, everyone just dropped acid mm -hmm. and a bunch of them freaked out and had horrible experiences. Duh. Did you get to the part about, I think they were talking about Silicon Valley doing... Microdosing, yeah. yeah. So Silicon Valley. You gotta wonder about some of those video games, like where they come up with those ideas. So people like <laughs> Steve Jobs would go up to engineers mm -hmm. and shake them by the by the shirt and be like, "Have you done acid yet? You need to do acid." Yeah. So he was a big psychedelic uh, proponent, and and the idea that again, and I've tried psychedelics in college, and I'll tell you, yes, they do that. The problem is without a guide, you can have a horrible. I have to say I haven't. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because. In oncology, that's where Michael Pollan talks a lot about the research. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a story of a guy in his book who had mm -hmm. uh, biliary cancer and was dying and ended up doing a high-dose psilocybin-guided mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. Had the experience of ego death, confronting his own death, mm -hmm. confronting his tumor, seeing mm -hmm. the loved ones in his life from a 30,000-foot integrative view. And he came back. And he continued to do chemo and all that. But he, when he was ready to transition to hospice, he was in an inpatient hospice. And um, his life had changed so much mm -hmm. that people would come to his room because he was giving yeah. off this aura yeah. of just equanimity and love. And he had seen uh, things from a different perspective. I think this might be our intro into yoga, only because. Perfect. <laughs> um, because I would say I had, uh, so I turned 50 last year. Congratulations. Thank you. you I did about 35. Thank you so much. And I did a, a number of things. It involved a puppy. Um, <laughs> but it also involved me doing a three-week yoga retreat um, to become a 200-hour yoga teacher. And um, the reason I'm mentioning this now is because spending three weeks on a beach in Panama or with nothing around except healthy food and the other people that were doing this retreat put us into this almost unreal state of mind. When I came home, it, it's almost... It, it, it was so unreal because we were so high on this experience and the equanimity of it and being able to conquer everything that I really did see things in a whole new life. And, and on a very small scale, on a really, um, on, on, a, uh, on a yoga experience, like a, I, I like to do Baptiste style hot power yoga, mm. it exhausts you to the point that um, when you're in Shavasana, that you almost have that sense of oneness uh, uh, that uh, is different. Yeah. So I'm not saying I've had a psychedelic experience, but but there are ways to get there. And you know, that's what I feel with the cancer patients. I'm gonna go back for a second, but what if our clinical trials, instead of looking at, did we shrink the tumor by 20%, and oh my God, that's a partial response, that's great. What if we also had a secondary endpoint um, that said, uh, achievement of serenity or <laughs> achievement of peace of mind or something along those lines that was really relevant to that person. 
and I've looked at that. It's really hard to figure out how to design a trial like that. Uh, but wouldn't it be great? But okay, first of all, that maybe it involves psychedelics. It, you know, <laughs> the, the, okay. So it's, I, there's so much in what you said that I think resonates deeply with my own experience with this. So, absolutely, attaining these states of mind do not require drugs. And yeah. in fact, yogis and meditators right. have been doing it for millennia. Right. I've had meditative experiences where it is the transcendence. Yeah, you're a regular sense. meditator. I'm a regular meditator, an hour a day. We've talked about it on the show. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's grown over six years. It is mm -hmm. work. Yeah. It is work and yeah. it's practice and it's reconditioning your mind. Self-forgiveness Self-forgiveness is a piece of it. Uh, equanimity, accepting the present moment. There's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff mm -hmm. that, that goes into it. But there are the states that you can achieve. And Psychedelics are like strapping yourself to a rocket and you know you're going to get somewhere. Uh, it may not be the right place, mm -hmm. but you're definitely, it's going to happen. With mm -hmm. meditation, with yoga, it means it's more like getting in a boat and hoisting a little sail and trying to grow that sail and mm -hmm. trying to guide it. You'll get there maybe, but you got to work at yeah. it. you got to be patient, but it may be a more gentle and forgiving and reproducible and scalable way to do it. This idea of studying this in patient populations, first of all, the fact that I'm talking to a world-class oncologist mm -hmm. about this is a sign that there is hope in the universe mm -hmm. because I know there's a lot of people who like to throw out one or the other. No, 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 it's oncology, it's chemotherapy, it's this, it's surgery, period. All the other stuff is nonsense mm -hmm. woo. Then there are the woo-woo guys that are like, no, it's about, bro, we can meditate this tumor away and baking soda, man, yeah. and like a vegan diet. How about this? Find what works for you. Mm -hmm. Do not throw out the chemotherapy right. and, the, and the stuff. Right, but hand in hand. Mind-body connection is crucial. Absolutely. So yoga. You also me. mentioned placebo effect, which I don't really like that word because it makes it sound like it's not real. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, but it's the we know realest depression thing in the world. is real, and yeah. we know depression can change your outcomes for cancer. Why can't the opposite? Um, so absolutely, mm -hmm. and you can have a nocebo effect, which mm -hmm. is the negative right. version. And and so to me, actually, placebo, and I agree. I think it's a wrong term. Mm -hmm. It's a mind-body mm -hmm. construct because the mind and the body. In yoga, you experience mm -hmm. this. In vipassana meditation, you experience this. It's really just one thing. Mm -hmm. The mind and the body are just a, a kind of a right. field of awareness. So it's being mindful, which is required during um, end-of-life conversations. Uh, it's about listening. And see, the thing about mindful, even the word is so charged with BS administrator talk now, but the true meaning of that word, I don't know if you got to this part in the book, in uh, Paul's book, but he talks about platitudes. Mm -hmm. And okay, so people who have these psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. and meditators mm -hmm. and yogis, mm -hmm. they come back and they come to the rest of the world and they turn to the camera and they go, God is love, everything is one. We need to just love each other. And people look at them like, so how high were you? Mm -hmm. Or what kind of hippie BS is this? The thing about platitudes is they, they are the simplest distillation of what is an awe-inspiring, ineffable, indescribable experience mm -hmm. of tr the true nature of things. And to come back and say God is love is the best that the human monkey mind can do right. to explain something that's transcendent. Right. And I think it's the same with what we're talking about. Mindfulness is a word, but what it really means is being there now in the present moment right. and aware that you're aware of it right. and using that in a way to relieve suffering. Right, to maybe even, uh, you know, it is your gateway into empathy. Um, and I was trying to think about this because my friend and I, um, 
used to use spirituality was a big word and it still is for mm. spirituality and medicine and what does that actually mean because people automatically go to religion but it, it doesn't mean that it means what we're talking about right now exactly is about um, having a connection with the patient as two human beings in addition to one who has maybe more medical knowledge than the other and uh, listening and understanding where they're coming from and the fear that they're having and maybe both of you being a little scared at the same time with one maybe hopefully guiding the other one as best they can. Uh, I find, and this may be why I ended up doing the yoga teacher, I'm in the middle of my 300 hour training now, um, and I teach a class at 6 a.m. Monday mornings, that's the time they gave me at MD Anderson. Of course. Yeah, it works for me, but I have to tell you, it is one of the most rewarding experiences at all because on my regular basis, I am having those conversations that we talked about. Yeah. But um, in my class the other day, um, I like to give a little lavender massage at the end. I saw tears, and it, and I knew they weren't sad tears. They were, they were kind of the tears of wholeness. And um, anyway, it's one of the most rewarding experiences for me. It, it, you know, it's interesting because again, there will be people watching this who'll be like, "These two hippies are talking <laughs> crap." The truth. Well, we is, can talk about cancer oh, treatment no, no, too. No, 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 <laughs> no. To me, to me, and I think you and I agree. Like this is the central premise of being a healer. It means being present in that way, recognizing those tears as something good and special, and a, a sign of an opening. Mm -hmm. Right, and I, I think that's what it is. And I think whether it's yoga, whether it's meditation, whether it's guided psychedelics, whether it's just sitting in a room with someone mm -hmm. and being there mm -hmm. when they're having the worst day or month yeah. or year, or couple years of their life, that's why I think what you do is such a deep gift, and you mm -hmm. see it. I think a lot of people get buried in the burnout of it. Like, There's how was, a lot of it now. Yeah. There's so much of it um, because it just keeps, and, and I think also the volume of knowledge that's happening at this exponential level for doctors. It's too In much. addition to the need to see more patients, there's all of these new targeted therapies that we need to not only remember to give, but to look for the targets as well as to know the new side effects. Uh, it's very complicated. This is why I think AI, as much as we hate it, is actually going to help us mm. to be better doctors. Because yeah. then we get to do this, and the AI is like, don't forget this and this right. and this. Right, the protocol says do this. Exactly. Now we can sit and talk. Now we can sit and talk. Mm -hmm. And that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's almost like having a scribe. Mm -hmm. What was the EHR like for you guys going live at MD? Oh, I think most people heard about it. It yeah. didn't go over. It made national well. news. It yeah. made national news. Um, and I'm still learning. There's some great things about it. Mm -hmm. You can definitely follow trends easier. Um, and so working in a county system for many years that didn't have one trying to find that paper chart. Oh yeah, uh, it's brutal, Or their right? bracket, their genetic diagnosis, which is on a sheet of paper sent in by someone else. This is something else. Yeah. Um, so communication is much better. Mm. Um, that said, as you talked about in your TMA lecture, you know, very often you'll find yourself looking at the screen uh, instead of looking at the patient. And it's really nice to bring them into it, like the way you guys set up your clinic to have mm. the screen so that you can show the patient pictures of if they want to see their tumor. Right, um, right. I just think that uh, it's, it's hard that, to remember to have that time to get to know them a little bit. Uh, and whether or not that's necessary, I don't know, but for avoiding burnout and finding meaningful, meaningfulness in life is probably really, really important. There's a huge chasm between being there with your patient and a 99235 level five mm -hmm. whatever. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think if we can start to bridge that, and we will, I think we're in a transition period, yeah. this Health 2.0. Yeah. We'll optimize for it, it'll suck. Yeah. People will get confused and think it's the goalpost. Yeah. 
but those those like yourself who see actually the shore we're trying to row to yeah. will use these tools to get us there faster and then we'll transcend them. So that's what I hope. And man, what a real pleasure talking yeah. about this stuff. That's fun. This is the stuff that gets me up in the morning. Yeah. You know, HPV is crucial, important. Right. Remember cancer how many cancers it causes? It, it causes <laughs> a bunch, yeah. right? Cervical, anal, you know, anal, anal oral penile, penile vulvovaginal, vulvovaginal, tonsil. We see three of those. We can, pre 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 we think we can prevent a lot of these with the HPV mm -hmm. vaccine, with the screening, which we talked about the new guidelines mm -hmm. for. Thank you for uh, educating me on that. Mm -hmm. so we talked about colposcopy and different, more intense screening and the danger of overscreening and yeah. overtreatment. We talked about being with our patients mm -hmm. and end of life and its intersection with oncology. We talked. We could talk a little bit about. Oh, and it's ten years, so it's nice. This. So tell me about. You brought me this book. Let me see I if do. I can. There it is. The light within, and it says here. I am advertising a little, only because uh, it's ten years ago that we published it, and Deb died more than ten years ago. Deb was an ovarian cancer patient at MD Anderson. She's your co-author. She's my co-author. She was a world religions professor at UC Santa Barbara and a PhD, and her ovarian cancer came on early in her life. She never got to write a book as a PhD. This was something that she wanted to do, so for the last, oh, I'm thinking six years or so of her life, we we became friends, and we would write to each other, and we also found reasons to write in France and in Turkey, um, and in Santa Barbara <laughs> nice. and in Texas, and what we did is um, we finished it while she was on hospice, and um, the way it's written is that my text is normal and hers is in italics. And her husband helped me finish publishing it. And her daughter, Abby, is working now in New York um, with kids of moms and dads who have cancer. And she's just an incredible person. Deb and I really were trying to get at what was spirituality between patients and doctors and we did a couple lectures together. She's just a fantastic person and again, it was 10 years ago. What I'm trying to do now is make up a, um, a playlist for the book because I, somebody else did that and I thought it was a great idea. Um, so I asked her daughter and her daughter said, uh, Bob Dylan's you gotta serve someone because mom said that's true. Um, <laughs> so that's that's kind of where we left it now. This, I can't believe you did this a decade ago. I know and it's, it actually is reflected as a decade ago. I think I've grown a lot since then and become more mindful and wow. hope to continue to grow because that's what it's all about. What a wonderful thing. What a real pleasure, yeah, a pleasure talking to you. Dr. Lois Raymondetta, she is professor of gynecologic oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, a tremendous human being, a tremendous doctor. She taught me a lot today, and I hope you guys got something out of this. If you did, do me a favor, hit subscribe on the podcast, review it, become a subscriber, and definitely check, is it on Amazon? It's on Amazon, this very book, cheap. Very cheap. <laughs> How do patients find you if they wanna get a referral or a second or a third opinion? Uh, just to contact MD Anderson, the Gynecologic Oncology um, Department. Excellent, so yeah, we'll get links for patients. that and we'll put it in yeah. the in yeah, the web post. Excellent. It was a pleasure talking to you because what I really appreciate is how you are educating in, in new ways. Uh, because the, the new world is about music and books and video clips and stories and maybe Darth Vader. Um, um, and, and you're getting really good information out there uh, to the public and I think it's important and that's why I'm here. Your $5 is in the mail. Thank you for that, those <laughs> kind words. Dr. Dr. Lois Raymondetta, thank you again mm -hmm. for everything. Have yeah. a safe travels home. And ZPAC, we out. Peace. 
hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.